1: Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. This
2: is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hello.
3: Forever.
0: Me, through town, it down. Y'all
4: relating, no Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt, came out 25 years ago, but it's now the center of a legal battle over one of the most cutting-edge investments out there, non-fungible tokens. As a young rapper, Jay-Z once teamed up with Damon Dash to sell CDs of his music out of a car in the Brooklyn Projects. Today, the co-founders of Rockefeller Records are embroiled in a lawsuit over an NFT jay-z and rockefeller records sued dash to stop him from auctioning off the copyright to reasonable doubt as an nft it's just one of a flurry of lawsuits involving nfts as courts begin to grapple with the novel issues surrounding ownership and regulation of the assets joining me is securities attorney robert heim a partner at tartar Krinsky and drogan bob for those who might not know explain what an nft is
2: an nft stands for non-fungible token And essentially, this is a token that's created on the blockchain uh, using a very similar technology to how cryptocurrencies are created. And the distinguishing factor of NFTs is that each NFT is unique. That's where the non-fungible term comes from. So in contrast to something like Bitcoin or even U.S. dollars, when people trade in those things or pay you know, a person doesn't care what sort of dollar they receive or what type of Bitcoin they receive. It's all the same. An NFT, on the other hand, each one is unique. And this is a type of digital asset where people can acquire it and have a specific right to digital art or other collectibles.
4: And what's the legal battle between Jay-Z and Rockefeller Records?
2: Jay-Z and Damon Dash were two out of the three founders of a very famous record label called Rockefeller Records in the 1990s, Damon Dash created an NFT that he wanted to sell, or he was in the process of creating one, and the dispute is over what exactly was included in the NFT that Damon Dash was creating. According to Jay-Z, Damon Dash was creating an NFT that apparently was being promoted as owning a copyright in Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt. Now, Damon Dash says, no, that's not the case. All that he was trying to include in the NFT was his one-third interest in Rockefeller records and any sort of royalties or dividends that he would have been paid as part of that. So there's a factual dispute that the court is going to have to resolve to determine what exactly Damon Dash was trying to create with his NFT.
4: There was a broad promise in the auction announcement for the NFT, The newly minted NFT will prove ownership of the album's copyright, transferring the rights to all future revenue generated by the album from Damon Dash to the auction winner. If you just look at that language, that sounds pretty sweeping.
2: Yes, that's definitely something the judge is going to look at. And importantly, that is really one of the key basis for Jay-Z's lawsuit In his complaint, he specifically discusses that announcement that Damon Dash made in conjunction with a company called Superfarm, which is an NFT platform that allows people to create and trade NFTs. And unfortunately for Damon Dash, with that announcement that he made says is that the copyright for the album was going to be included in the NFT. So the idea as it was marketed was that people could purchase these NFTs and own part of the copyright of Jay-Z's debut album, which clearly Damon Dash does not have the ability to sell. And he even acknowledges that in the lawsuit.
4: Tell us a little more about Dash's claims.
2: He argues that what Jay-Z is accusing him of doing is not What he's trying to do, he's saying that he wasn't trying to create an NFT based on the copyright. He was just trying to create the NFT from his shares in Rockefeller Records. So the whole NFT that Damon Dash was trying to create has gotten very muddled, and it's not really clear what was the assets behind it, which highlights some of the risks that are associated with these NFT sales. Dash's position is contradicted by the announcement that the NFT platform put out Now, Damon Dash is trying to argue that that announcement was an error. It was a very early stage and that nothing has really been created yet. I think the message in this case for everybody is that if you're going to be buying an NFT, you really have to investigate what are the digital assets or the art or the music that are behind the NFT and to make sure the creators actually have the rights to create and sell NFTs based on that intellectual property
4: ownership rights can obviously be complex. It sounds like it might be something that's difficult to investigate if you're looking to buy an NFT.
2: You can do more to investigate. The auction notice that was issued in this particular case was very early. And then as the NFT gets created, there's more details that get disseminated to potential buyers that describe the exact rights that will be given to the NFT and what people will own. Now, in cases like copyrights, a person, if they're going to do due diligence, could go to the U.S. Copyright Office's website and look to see if the person who's creating the NFT actually has those copyrights. So there are things that people can do, but it's not always so easy. And it's a very technical area, which really makes for a buyer beware type of atmosphere.
4: Can you even make an NFT out of your part ownership in a company?
2: Whether a person can make an NFT out of their shares or ownership in Rockefeller Records or any other company is an open question, and it's really a different type of use. Traditionally, NFTs have been used to sell things like digital art or sports highlights or music. No one's really tried to sell basically shares or ownership in a company, and I think if Damon Dash went ahead with that sort of plan... He could well have run into securities regulatory problems because there's no indication that he intended to register that type of offering with the SEC.
4: Now, these NFTs can contain a smart contract that guarantees the artist can reap the benefits of the secondary market so that artists would have to be paid royalties. Is that disclosed? Is it clear?
2: Yes. The nice thing about smart contracts is that they're publicly available on the blockchain. They're transparent so that... Anybody that wants to check out what is being sold can easily go to the blockchain and find out how the smart contract has been programmed. One of the benefits of NFTs that have been promoted is that, you know, you're right, it does give the artists an ability to participate in the secondary market sales of their artwork. So for instance, if a young unknown artist sells an NFT, it it may not be worth very much when it first comes out, but if over time the artist becomes very famous, that NFT could be worth a lot of money, and traditionally, artists wouldn't have a way to participate in those kind of secondary market sales, only the collectors could profit. Now with smart contracts, artists can get a percentage of that, and it's usually built right in specifically to the smart contract and how those types of sales proceeds are distributed.
4: Are NFTs securities subject to regulation by the Securities and Exchange Commission? The market is getting huge. Isn't it time for the SEC to say?
2: Yes, I think the market really does need guidance from regulators in terms of whether NFTs are securities or under what circumstances they would be considered securities. There's an old Supreme Court test called the Howey test, which was a decision that helps lawyers and market participants try to analyze these issues to determine whether or not a particular financial instrument will be considered a security. And some of the things that courts will look at, whether or not there's commingling of investor money, what the motivations are for people buying it, is it being bought as a collectible or is it being bought as an investment? But there's a huge gap in the regulatory world, and there's been very, very little guidance from any regulators about what an NFT is a security or not. As a result, we're seeing more litigation being picked up to flesh out these issues.
4: Yeah, it seems like they're leaving it up to the courts. And you have that class action lawsuit against Dapper Labs?
2: In June of of 2021, we've seen the first class action lawsuits associated with an NFT where the plaintiffs have alleged that the NFT was a security and Dapper Labs, which was the company that created that particular NFT, violated the securities laws by selling these NFTs. And this is related to the NBA and Dapper Labs was helping to create NFTs based on sports highlights of NBA games and very, very popular platform, a well-known NFT. The complaint alleges that over $500 million was raised from the sale of the NBA-related NFTs. And this really has a chance of becoming a landmark case where a court will, for the first time, look at these facts to make a determination as to whether a security is present or not.
4: It's sort of stunning to me that this market keeps growing and growing, and just no one's paying attention to the legal aspects of it.
2: Well, that's part of the problem. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum have become uh, very popular in the last several years, and really the pace of innovation is very rapid and now we're seeing NFTs, which are kind of a spin-off of cryptocurrencies. And more and more innovation is taking place in the blockchain space every day. We're seeing all sorts of new products related to things like mortgage securitizations, where people are trying to develop financial applications for loans. And the other thing that is really hampering the market is that not only the SEC could have an interest in it as a security, but there's questions about whether it's a commodity that could come under the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And there's a lot of other agencies which could potentially touch on these instruments, but nobody's really giving any sort of guidance in this space right now.
4: More to come, Bob. Thanks so much. That's Robert Heim of Tartar, Krinsky & Drogen.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From my simple beginnings of where I came to have the gift and the opportunity to be next to a President of the United States, to have the honor of running an inauguration, to be up close and personal on some issues
3: um, that affect world order, I paid a personal price for it.
4: And billionaire Tom Barrack is still paying that price as he faces charges of acting as an unregistered foreign agent of the United Arab Emirates for his role in what prosecutors say was a secret back-channel effort to influence the foreign policy positions of the Trump administration. Barrack got a royal welcome in the UAE about a month after Donald Trump's election. The crown prince of Abu Dhabi was just one of the five high-ranking men who met with Barrick in December of 2016, according to Bloomberg sources. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Caleb Melby. Caleb, start by telling us about that 2016 royal meeting.
3: So after Trump got elected, Tom Barrick, who probably many Bloomberg radio listeners will know, the investor, founder of Colony Capital, made a trip out to the United Arab Emirates in December, where, according to U.S. prosecutors, he met with several Emirati officials that he had been engaging with over the course of the 2015-2016 presidential campaign about his good friend Donald Trump, who he had backed for president. So prosecutors allege that Tom Barrack was essentially acting as an unregistered foreign agent on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. They allege in their indictment that in public appearances, he pushed uh, preferred Emirati policy and attempted to get, as a member of the Trump transition team, at least one official into the Trump White House team that would be sympathetic and favorable to the Emirati cause.
4: The indictment identifies barracks hosts at the meeting only as Emirati official one, two, three, four, and five. Do we now know who those officials are?
3: So, Bloomberg exclusively reported the names of the five officials. Some of them were already kind of understood to be known. For instance, in the indictment, Prosecutors discussed Official 1 coming to a White House meeting, so people were pretty sure that that was Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, who met with then-President Trump on that date. But there's others who weren't known until our reporting. That includes his brother Sheikh Tanoon bin Zayed and the UAE's National Security Advisor, as well as Ali Mohammed Hamad al-Shamsi, the director of the Emirati Intelligence Service, what is essentially a who's who of some of the most powerful people in the United Arab Emirates. That
4: shows just how high-powered that meeting was. And prosecutors allege that Barrick basically made a pitch to the royals at that meeting?
3: That's exactly right. So you can imagine what it might be like for Tom Barrick to fly over there He was one of the earliest backers of Trump's campaign, the most high profile, therefore, of Trump's Wall Street backers for being so early in the Trump camp. And when he flies to the Emirates in early December 2016, he is at that time a key decision maker on Trump's transition team. And also he's heading the Presidential Inaugural Committee, the group that is both going to be raising money for and throwing the party celebrating Trump's ascent to the White House. So according to text and other sorts of conversations that prosecutors put in the indictment, He was talking to them to basically think big. He wanted them to envision not what just could be accomplished during the first 100 days of a Trump presidency, but he was also encouraging them to think about what could be accomplished during four years of a Trump presidency.
4: And was he trying to set up a secret back
3: channel? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Prosecutors allege that there's a secret back channel just by virtue of the fact that Barracks and his assistant Matthew Grimes are essentially not just in that meeting, but in Barrick's public appearances and in interactions with the White House, was pushing the line of a foreign power without fully disclosing his relationship to that foreign power. Something that's interesting about the government's indictment is they actually described President Trump as a victim of a scheme perpetrated by Barrick for his failure to fully disclose his ties to the Emirati royal.
4: Do prosecutors allege that Barrick ever gave inside
3: information to the UAE? So the prosecutors create in the indictment a sense that, yeah, the information is both coming in and going out and they describe via text messages on WhatsApp and other services between Tom Barrack, his assistant Matthew Grimes, who, you know, I've kind of described as Barrack's body man. He goes with him everywhere. He literally carries the bag, etc cetera. And Emirati businessman Rashid Al Malik. So there's this understanding that they are both trying to influence the Trump White House. And also they're doing what they can to keep their points of contact in the Emirates a of what's going on on a policy basis.
4: There's an interesting allegation about how he was conflicted during the blockade of Qatar.
3: In crucial context here is Tom Barrick, who has done business with a lot of these Gulf Royals, is also incredibly close with the Qatari royal family. I mean, he's gone into business with them on the Claridge's Hotel in London, uh, the Paris Saint-Germain soccer team, So when the Emirates and Saudi Arabia announce a blockade of Qatar, and Trump tweets in support of that blockade, it's incredibly disturbing to the Qataris, of course. And Beric has alleged in public that he was surprised by that turn of events. But you can see how that becomes a very tenuous position for him after he was brokering a lot of proximity to the White House for the Emiratis who initiated that blockade.
4: I assume that part of the case will be texts from Al-Malik to Barak or his assistant saying things like, they are very happy here, great
1: feedback.
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it definitely appears to be the strength of the government's cases. They have these very discreet interactions and text messages that they're really bringing it to life through a lot of color Some of the conversations they're having, both kind of how happy Barrick and his assistant, Matthew Grimes, are to show that they are here to help and also hearing responses from the other side that that their help is much appreciated.
4: Barrick is also accused of a crime that many high profile white collar criminals fall prey to, and that's lying to the FBI.
3: So prosecutors uh, allege that he lied, among other things, about having essentially another encrypted device on which to have some of the conversations he's alleged to have had with the Emirati businessman, Rashid Al-Malik. So it'll be very interesting to see how much the government's case rests on those lying allegations, as opposed to some of these other allegations about foreign influence.
4: Thanks, Caleb. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Caleb Melby. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com podcast law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.